0: to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Who are you? Someday in the distant future, we may well be faced with an important moral dilemma. Technology is sort of like a superpower in that it enhances what it's possible for us to do. Buying into a new technology is like buying into new superpowers or new additional abilities. Even if they're things I'm never going to actually use, just having all of these abilities at your fingertips is super cool. So new technologies often present us with new possibilities, new powers and abilities. The question then arises, how do we use these powers and abilities? The deeper question might also arise, should we use these new powers and abilities at all? In particular, when we introduce the possibility of transporting ourselves at the speed of information and reassembling ourselves at a distant location like we see in Star Trek and other science fiction, many will adopt this miracle technology without reflection. I, for one, will not be among them. I will not step into a transporter. Why you ask? Well, let me tell you why. I should note that not much here is original. Some comes from a guy named Derek Parfit. Other comes from another guy named Patrick Grimm. Some comes from my conversation with Amy Kind that we'll get into later. Others have written extensively on related issues and related thought experiments. None of this is super revolutionary philosophy. I do take a little bit of credit here, though. Some of this is my own original thought. So let's back up a bit. How do these things work, these these transporters, how do they work? What sorts of assumptions can we make right off the bat? The way these transporters apparently work is by destroying your body in its current location. Presumably they do this so as to gain access to molecule-by-molecule structural information about the current state of your whole physical person. Then it beams this hyper-specific model of your current state to a device elsewhere that reconstructs your physical body, again, molecule-by-molecule. This seems to me to be the only way to make a Star Trek-like transporter work given our current understanding of physics. There might be some different way, and I'd, I'd love to hear from you if you know of one, but for our discussion today I will just assume that what happens is the destruction and reconstruction of your body down to the last molecule. So I'm on the planetary surface in my red shirt, loyally at the side of Captain Kirk, and our mission is complete. Kirk sounds triumphantly into his communicator. We're beaming up. Notify transporter room. Then apparently, what happens is my body is dissolved painlessly. The ship has a scanner tool that's powerful enough to scan my body's current physical state on the planetary surface while simultaneously breaking that physical structure down. In the show, it seems like maybe a tractor beam actually captures the constituent molecules and beams them to the ship. All the water and nitrogen and gold and oxygen and carbon and iron and folate that makes me up gets transported quickly through space. We can imagine a similar technology, though, that already has stores of these molecules in place on the ship, or is able to synthesize molecules from pure energy. Maybe that's what's happening in the show. Then, apparently something like a 3D printer rebuilds the microstructure of my body, molecule by molecule, and I am suddenly conscious SPRUNG FULLY FORMED FROM THE MIND OF ZEUS in the transporter bay on the USS Enterprise. Get Zeus. There doesn't seem to be anything incoherent or incompatible with what we know about brain science or biology to suppose that it might be in principle possible to create a full human body that is a microscopically accurate double of another, and have it function properly and even remember things that happened to the body of which it is a copy. It might actually work like it does in Star Trek. You wake up in the USS Enterprise in the middle of a thought you were having right before you got beamed up by Scotty. Let's allow that this is compatible with the way our brains and the rest of our biology works. Yeah? Okay, so you're faced with a problem. You want to visit Alpha Centauri and come back to Earth afterwards. It'd be super duper cool, but the problem is that you'll have to step into one of these newfangled transporter booths. You're a little skittish about the new technology, and I think you have a right to be. When you step into the transporter booth, your body will be dissolved molecule by molecule, and its current state will be scanned. Then that digital scan will be beamed across the galaxy to the Alpha Centauri arrival station, where a booth will receive that scan and reconstruct you in the state you were in in the moment you were scanned. A fairly painless process, but maybe a slight electrical jolt just at the beginning. The machines that do the scanning and reconstructing are very accurate, so there's no time needed to get used to your reconstructed body or to allow things to settle back into place. It's all exactly as it was back on Earth. Then later, your visit across the galaxy is over and you decide to beam home. Again, you're deconstructed and meticulously scanned at Alpha Centauri, Beamed home, and then reconstructed a second time back on Earth. Sounds like fun, right? There's a lot to see, and traveling at the speed of light would allow you to see much more of it. Wrong, I say, wrong. Do not do it. I say don't do it because it seems rather obvious to me, actually, that you will die each time you use the transporter. Or since you'll die the first time, the new you copy will die when they use the transporter to get home. The person who arrives home and is greeted by your friends and family will not be you. It will just be a very good copy of you. Actually, it will be a copy of a copy of you since you've been dissolved twice. And I haven't even started talking about the timey-wimey stuff that happens when you or information about you travels at the speed of light. That gets really weird. Watch Christopher Nolan's Interstellar for some decent representation of time dilation due to the effects of gravity. Some of the same effects will happen when you travel close to the speed of light. Anyways, let's set aside time dilation and all the Einsteiny weird stuff having to do with space-time, and we'll just focus on the philosophical issue, is it you who arrives back on Earth after a round-trip safari to Alpha Centauri? Alpha Centauri is a star, by the way, so when I say trip to Alpha Centauri, you're smart enough to figure out that I actually mean reference to a planet orbiting Alpha Centauri, right? You're not one of those pedantic Neil deGrasse Tyson types who thinks people talking loosely always means they don't understand something right. There are two lines of attack that I'll take. I'm going to call them the metaphysical line of argument and the moral line of argument. One appeals to the metaphysical status of the object that comes out of the transporter and the object that steps into the transporter. And the other argument appeals to the moral status of that same being or set of beings. First, the metaphysical argument. When we ask ourselves what it means to be, quote unquote, the same object over time, we never seem to imagine cases where the object stops existing and then sometime later comes into existence again, only to be called the same object. If my apple gets eaten then through the wonders of nanotechnology reconstructed out of the physical waste it turned into in a digestive tract, we won't likely want to eat it, but we certainly won't call it the very same apple, right? It's a new apple that's been constructed out of bits and pieces of the old one. There are a lot of fun thought experiments to discuss here, but I don't want to go too far away from my core purpose, to argue that one should not make use of matter transporters when they are invented. Here's one more thought experiment, though. It's called the Ship of Theseus. It was mentioned pretty recently on the Marvel show WandaVision. Theseus was a famous adventurer and explorer in ancient Greece. Aristotle presents us with this interesting case to think about.
1: Theseus's ship would inevitably become damaged through the course of his travels. Whenever he returned home, therefore, he would have to pay the shipwrights to replace boards, masts, sails, and so on. Over time, he managed to damage every single piece of his ship, such that at one point, he had replaced each and every piece of the ship from bow to stern. But Theseus is a famous man, you see. So when they replaced his mast, they didn't just throw away the broken log. When they replaced a plank, they didn't just throw away the worn board. Instead, a savvy shipwright set these pieces aside in a special pile. Eventually, throughout all of Theseus' travels, the entire ship was replaced, Not one piece of the ship remains the same. And the shipwright responsible for replacing all of these pieces has become quite rich.
0: Thank you to Kelly Marie Lavin for narrating this episode. The first question we must ask ourselves is simply, is Theseus still sailing the same ship? If every piece has been replaced, should we stop thinking of it as the same ship? Maybe at some point it became a brand new ship, the ship of Theseus 2.0. The story continues, though.
1: This now-wealthy shipwright has a plan to honor his famous and loyal client Theseus. The shipwright commissions his workers to reconstruct a new, plank-for-plank replica of Theseus's ship. But the kicker is that the shipwright decides to use the pieces they have taken from the old ship of Theseus. So now we have two ships of Theseus. One that Theseus has been sailing continuously, but which has no constituent part that it originally had. And another that Theseus has in some sense never set foot upon, but which is structurally identical to and has all of the original parts as Theseus' ship, plus a patch or brace here and there.
0: The second question we'll have to ask ourselves is, which is the real ship of Theseus? Is there any sense to this question? There are a lot of philosophical questions to draw out of this thought experiment. For now, though, I want to drill down on one particular aspect of the story— The ship is completely disassembled and then reassembled in an essentially structurally identical manner. Is that the same ship? I think not. Once an object has been disassembled, let alone entirely dissolved, it has lost its status as one continuous and identical object. When it's reconstructed, it is now two very similar but not identical objects, one object before and another object after. Let's try a different thought experiment, one that might be closer to the topic I'm discussing here, which is transporters.
1: Theseus and his new and shiny ship comes to the Isthmus of Panama. Convinced as he is, though, that the Fountain of Youth lies somewhere beyond this narrow strip of land, he decides to do something bold, something never before done. He conscripts his crew to tear down the ship piece by piece, keeping careful track of how the ship went together. The crewfolk are very good and careful not to damage any pieces. They then trek across Panama with planks of the ship on their backs until they reach the Great Sea Beyond, now called the Pacific Ocean. The ship is then reconstructed carefully so as to be structurally identical to the ship that was deconstructed on the Caribbean shore. They then set sail along the coast in search of clues as to the whereabouts of the Fountain of Youth.
0: Is the ship in the Pacific the same ship as the one that arrived on Panama's Caribbean shores? Is it just a very similar ship, but not the very same ship? What do you at home think? Think about it for a second. I'm honestly unsure of what to say, and that lack of clarity should make us deeply uncomfortable. If it's a ship, it doesn't matter so much. We don't really care whether it's the very same ship. Similarly, if I'm transporting my computer through a transportation device, so long as all the bits on the hard drive are flipped properly, and all of the gates in the processors are arranged properly, I'm happy. But it's very different if I myself am going to be dissolved and reconstituted. I want a bit more than structural similarity. I want it to be me. Capital M. Me. Not some really similar doppelganger. It seems that most cases where something dissolves and then is reconstituted are cases where the original thing has gone away. There might be exceptions to this, but I think being continuously integrated, being put together continuously over time, seems to be pretty darn important to remaining the very same object, rather than a very similar copy. Let's take a break and then I, or a very similar sounding copy of me, will move on to what I'm calling the moral argument against transporters. I want to take this break to ask that you please rate and review us on itunes it makes a huge difference uh, you can rate and review us on apple podcasts also on google play i believe and i will post a couple of links in the show notes if you could give us a five star rating and um, also a written review that would help a lot in helping other people discover our podcast thank you so much in advance Remember back a ways when I said there were two lines of attack here? The first was a metaphysical argument. Well, here's the second line. I'll call it a moral argument. It's not so much a moral argument in the sense that you might construct an argument convincing you not to hurt yourself or hurt someone else, or an argument about why it's wrong to steal or lie or something. I mean a moral in a broader sense here. Moral in the sense of having to do with things we find morally urgent and the things we care about, having to do with living a good life and being assured that things are going well for us, having to do with what we value and what matters. As I'll argue, things aren't going well for someone about to step into a transporter, so this should hit us in our moral sense. We should be morally uncomfortable with either stepping into a transporter ourselves or allowing others to do so. Okay, let's run through a couple of scenarios. In all of these scenarios, you've had a lovely time visiting the Alpha Centauri system, and now you're ready to head home first scenario.
1: You step into the booth and your body is dissolved and scanned. But then there's a malfunction and the file is deleted. No body. No backup scan. So you are... kaput. Dead. No more.
0: No more! It has
1: ceased to be! It's expired and gone to meet its maker! It's a stiff! There's no more you. Tragic.
0: Right? So, what's the difference between the normal case, the one where you're reconstituted back home on Earth, and this one? Is the difference that there's a copy running around on Earth? What about the you that got dissolved? What about your life? Scenario two.
1: You step into the booth and your body is dissolved and scanned. But there's a different malfunction, and the machine that is supposed to reconstruct you becomes broken for repairs for 16 years. They eventually fix it, and when they boot it up, they find that your scan has been sitting in the queue the entire time. Out pops a perfect copy that is unaware that 16 years have passed since you stepped into the transporter.
0: Are you you? Are you dead and gone and an imposter has taken your place? What do you think? What about that 16-year gap? Does that make a difference? Intuitively, it seems to make it less like the new copy is still you since there hasn't been a you at all for 16 years. Again, it feels like integrity through time is really important to remaining the same person. Third scenario.
1: You step into the booth to return home from your trip and the machine scans your current physical state but makes a mistake in scanning so that you are accidentally still around you haven't been dissolved. Another problem, the doctor on call says that because of the error, you'll die of massive coronary failure in three days. You're shocked and saddened, but then the doctor tells you that you can talk with your doppelganger, the one that showed up on earth bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. That copy version of you comforts you with the thought that even though you're going to perish soon, your friends and family and romantic partner won't have to go on without you since your copy will be there for them.
0: A cold comfort, if ever there was one. This is what I mean by this being a moral argument. It appeals to our sense of what matters in life, and never seeing your friends or family again certainly seems to matter. Dying certainly seems to matter. Fourth scenario.
1: You step into the booth to return home from your trip, and the machine scans your current physical state, but makes a mistake in dissolving you so that you are accidentally still around. You haven't been dissolved no real problem this time you're just there on alpha centauri and there's a different you back on earth
0: there's a star trek the next generation episode where Riker deals with a similar sort of scenario which one lives the life you planned on living upon your arrival at home do you trust the transporter to actually send you back this time which one is the real you again the moral component of the transportation device is clear we have to make a decision about who lives the life and who goes off to explore the world? Who gets to keep the friends? Who abandons the life you've built? Or maybe you both just stay and try to make things work. it get a little weird if you're married or with a romantic partner, though. Let's just not go there. If you've never seen The Prestige, it plays with similar themes. I won't drop any spoilers, but there are similar questions about who remains the same person over time. And it goes to some pretty dark places. It's an incredible film. Highly recommended. I also recommend the Sam Rockwell film Moon. And there's a new Netflix show starring Paul Rudd and Eileen Bay that plays with similar themes. It's called Living With Yourself. Check all of those out. None of these arguments are cut and dry. The basic idea is just to get some intuitions on the table about what it means to remain the same person. If you're like me, though, then these thought experiments make you think that it'd be best not to take any trips to Alpha Centauri that don't involve hypersleep and spaceships might take a lot longer, but at least you can be more assured that the being who wakes up in the Alpha Centauri system is actually you rather than a knockoff copy. Hopefully at this point you're firmly convinced not to use transportation devices. I know this urgent question has been keeping you up at night. You can safely go to sleep now. We'll take a break and then get into the central topic of today's episode, the problem of personal identity. want to take this break to mention that we do have a patreon and so you can support us financially that way if you feel led even just like 50 cents or a dollar a month would help us pay the bills and uh, we have hosting fees website fees and that kind of thing so if you like the program please uh, chip in a little bit of money
2: i'm amy kind and i am a professor of philosophy at claremont mckenna college
0: I talked with Professor Amy Kind and asked her to guide us through today's topic, personal identity.
2: So I teach courses in um, philosophy of mind and metaphysics and logic. And I also teach sometimes advanced seminar on imagination. And I also have taught courses um, connecting philosophy and science fiction.
0: The question I started with is, What makes you, you throughout your life? What is it about you that stays the same so that you can still be you even though lots about you has changed?
2: Um, So I think uh, actually the question of personal identity probably really should be called the questions of personal identity because there are a lot of questions there. We, We could use the problem of personal identity to mean any of those different questions, right? So like, what kind of thing am I? What makes me the same thing over time? And what makes me the thing that I am? Um, Those are different ways of of approaching it. And they're all related to personal identity.
0: Okay, so there are many questions about personal identity, about the identity of persons, but maybe the classical one is the question of re-identification. How do I identify the same person over time? How do I, metaphysically speaking, figure out when a person has ceased to be the same person. When I run into someone I haven't seen since high school, in what sense is that the same person as my classmate in high school?
2: So what makes a person at one time the same person as a person at another time, and so people undergo all sorts of changes in their life. right They start off as little babies, not able to do much of anything at all, um, as you 're probably aware, and um, then they develop into you know angry teenagers and uh, go through all of these stages through life and then Um, Much later in life, uh, they might not be able to remember what they did as a teenager. And so the question is, you know, what makes someone um, say at one time, like in, I don't know, 1960. uh, So we have this individual who calls themselves, you know, I don't know. Uh, Tom Smith and then we have an individual in 2020 who calls himself Tom Smith and what makes that individual the same person over time. So that that's what I think of as sort of the classic problem of personal identity.
0: In the normal case in a normal life Tom Smith will have a continuous body throughout his life. He will have memories from earlier in his life that tie current him to his past self.
2: He probably remembers quite a bit from 1960 and 1970 and 1980
0: and so on. He will have had a stream of consciousness that's more or less continuous, excepting maybe some episodes of Dreamless Sleep. He will be a continuous stream of psychological stuff like short and long-term memories, experiences, imaginations, desires, dreams, and so on.
2: But we can imagine all sorts of cases where these things come apart
0: so what we do is start with a case and then see what it points towards in terms of a theory of personal identity. The case that Amy Kind started with in our interview was.
2: You know, a, a sort of bionic woman kind of case, right? So first we replaced your arm and then we replace your other arm and then we replaced your ear. Bionic women have a bionic ear. Anyway, we replace your ear and then we replace your eyes. And, you know, all of a sudden we have a cyborg. um, But it's been you through all of those changes.
0: If we can slowly replace parts of your body.
2: We replace your ear and then we replace
0: your eyes. And then after each replacement, we determine that you're the same person. But at the end of the process, we have a full-on cyborg. Whereas before the process, we had a regular human being. Is it the same person? Well, if we decide that after each individual change, it is still you, not enough has changed and your psychological self seems to have continued on more or less unchanged, then it seems like you are not your body. We have replaced your whole body, but you are still there. So it seems to follow that your personal identity doesn't rely on your body. What do you think? I encourage you to pause the podcast here and discuss the case with others in the room with you. Are you the same person, even though your whole body has gradually been replaced? If you agree, then...
2: Oh, well, it's an easy answer, right? It has something to do with personality or mind. It's so obvious.
0: Seems to us, given the bionic woman case, that psychological continuity is what matters for re-identification. Breaking that down to re-identify our original Tom Smith over and over again all we have to do is ask who has had a continuous psychology, a continuous stream of memories, experiences, imaginations, goals, dreams, desires, and so on.
2: So I think that when... When we think about science fiction scenarios, it just seems like we can imagine all different sorts of cases in which our personality, our memory, is separated from our body. So um, we have the Freaky Friday case, where it seems like we could do a kind of body swap. And to be honest, even that way of putting it, body swap, suggests that like, I can let go of my body, I can swap bodies with someone else, so that suggests that I identify in a way with something other than my body. Um, Also, all of the kind of scenarios that have us uploading ourselves to machines or to the internet or to a flash drive or something like that, that also suggests that we can leave our physical bodies behind and that we are something different from our physical bodies. So when you consider those sorts of cases, I think there's a really big pull to think that it's about something mental, okay, memories, psychological states, and so on.
0: Good, so we've solved it, yeah. No more problem of personal identity.
2: But now we can think of other cases, you know, when, let's say, late in life, going back to my fictional person Tom Smith, if late in life Tom Smith, you know, falls into some kind of persistent vegetative state or has some sort of severe dementia and no longer can remember anything about his earlier life anything at all or maybe has you know no access to his consciousness whatsoever being in a persistent vegetative state yet still you know when we walk into the the hospital room we say hey that's Tom Smith in the bed there right and we we ha- we don't declare Tom Smith dead um, when he goes into the persistent vegetative state. He's still alive. Like Tom Smith is still with us. So if it were all just about memory or personality or mind, then we wouldn't probably have the reactions we do in the Tom Smith case.
0: In these cases where the body remains intact, but the psychology breaks down in some way, say a coma or amnesia or dementia or the like, in these cases, it seems like the body being continuous is sufficient to call it the same person.
2: So we're sort of pulled in different directions. And that's what makes the question such a puzzle.
0: Now I actually pushed kind a little bit on this because it seems like we sometimes do use language like he's not really there anymore, it's just his body, or she hasn't been with us for years. It's almost like we do talk in terms of psychological continuity. We do seem to think that the psychological self is necessary, And so if we don't have the psychological self, then we won't have the person there at all.
2: Right. So sometimes our language does seem, even in that case, to suggest like, oh, well, there's a sense in which, yeah, Tom Smith isn't with us. But now let's go to the other end of life, right? Like, so take a little baby, right? And uh, that, you know, that little six-month-old baby... Um, is having all sorts of experiences, but the 16-year-old teenager isn't going to remember anything about those current experiences. So, you know, we threw like elaborate birthday parties for, you know, my son's second and third and fourth birthday parties. And now I'm like, oh, don't you remember, you know, we had Thomas the Train and we rode around. My kids don't remember any of that, like none whatsoever. Like they don't even remember caring about Thomas the Train. And yet, you know, it's still like my same son, even though there is no memory connection whatsoever between the 16 year old and the two year old. So that's an, you know, that's another case where we have, I mean, obviously there's some similarity of personality and similarity of other mental stuff, but we don't really have all the connections that say we have between my 30 year old self and my 40-year-old self, and so on.
0: This thinking about memory connection seems to point towards a body view, a view according to which our personal identity sticks with our body rather than our minds or psychological features.
2: It's a little tricky because we often put it and think about it in terms of memory connections, but probably memory connections are not quite enough because, for reasons I've already mentioned, we don't have deep connections of memories between all different states for example. And all sorts of puzzles arise if you even just think about going to sleep at night, right? So this starts us to get into considerations that might speak in favor of um, a body kind of view. So I tend to think that I existed while I was asleep last night. Um, During some of the periods of the night, at least I was having a dreamless sleep. I have no memory Of myself at that time I have no real psychological connection to myself at that time during that time in which I was sleeping there was no real psychological connection between my sleeping self and any waking self nothing really was going on and yet I seem to exist there and I think like it's not as if I went out of existence when I went to bed last night and came back into existence this morning when I returned to consciousness so just We don't have to go to fancy science fiction cases, just the case of sleep suggests that personhood is not just about psychological states, but maybe has something to do with body.
0: Another more mundane everyday example is something that college students might be all too familiar with. If you're familiar with the example, I actually think you should get help because it is not normal or healthy. But here is the example.
2: Blacking out, um, perhaps from too much to drink. And we tend to think, or or, or not even just when you're, when you actually have blacked out and you've gone unconscious, but during that period at the party from, say, you know, uh, this probably sounds incredibly square, but from like, say, 10 p.m. to 2 p.m. Even the word square probably sounds square. But anyway, there's some period There's some period of time, say from like 10 p.m. to 2, when you were awake and you were talking to people and you were the life of the party, and you have no memory of that now, like none whatsoever. Um, but we still think it was you. And, and actually, there might be almost no psychological connections between yourself and you then because your personality was so different then, the way you were acting, you were acting crazy and outgoing or angry in a way that you aren't in your normal life Um, and yet we want to say it was you at the party you know like when when friends of you are mad today because of something you did they're mad at you because you did it even though there might be very tenuous or almost no psychological connections between you now and then
0: Okay, so to retrace our steps we started with the bionic woman case and that seemed to suggest that what makes us the same person throughout our lives is our psychology or our mind But then we have cases like not remembering what it's like to be a baby or becoming comatose or even just regular old dreamless sleep, where we aren't as psychologically continuous as we might like, but we still want to say that we're the same person as before.
2: So on the one hand, we have considerations that point us strongly towards psychological factors being what's important. And on the other hand, we have considerations that point us towards bodily considerations being important. And that's part of what makes it all such a model. A good model, but a model.
0: We're facing challenges from both sides. And so we might find it difficult to come up with one principle that makes us the same person throughout our lives that isn't vulnerable to these sorts of worries. That's the basic setup of the personal identity problem or the problem of re-identification. What do we do? It seems like we can't go a psychological route and we can't go a body route. So what do we do? Let's take a short break and then we'll press onwards. I want to take this break to highlight one podcast that I've been enjoying lately. It's called The Philosopher and the News, and it's hosted by Alexi Papazoglu. And uh, it's a really fantastic just interview with philosophers about things relevant to things going on in the news right now. And uh, there are some really nice episodes that uh, really help me make sense of the world right now and how we should think about it. Uh, I tend to want to consult with philosophers about current events, and this is a great way to do that. Some people who've thought, really uh, deeply about these events. So go check it out, The Philosopher and the News. Before the break, we were stuck between two views of personal identity, and each view had cases or thought experiments to support it. We had a body view and a psychology view.
2: And, you know, I think many of us sort of identify with ourselves in terms of our psychological states. And that's who we think we are. But then when you really start to think about like what it would mean not to have this body anymore or not to have any body anymore, it does start to seem puzzling how that would still genuinely be you. Like even if you're not particularly committed to, you know, your, your, brown hair, you know, or the shape of your hands or something like that. And obviously we can undergo all different sorts of transformations to our body, both natural and unnatural over time. But so even if you're not someone who's like particularly connected to the precise configuration of your body, still the idea of having no body at all, like, would you still sort of be the same thing, this, a person at all or the same person. So it gets kind of tricky to sort out and imagine.
0: Okay, so we might be more tempted to go in for a psychological view because that's basically a common sense sort of view. The body view is the less common sense view, we might think. We can probably get around issues with the psychological views, so maybe we can go in for this sort of view and then hope that we can solve any puzzles that arise downstream.
2: The the mere fact that we can sort of imagine these sort of body swap cases do tend to, I think, suggest to a lot of philosophers that we should go in a sort of psychological direction. And so a lot of philosophers have tried, and this is in the tradition of John Locke, have tried to offer some sort of psychological theory of personal identity where what makes you the same person over time is the psychological connections. And those philosophers are willing to sort of bite the bullet on the hard cases. So going back To um, a case we were talking about earlier, if, you know, you're in a persistent vegetative state, then, okay, yes, maybe legally you're still alive, right? We don't probate your will yet, but you, the person, right, no longer exists. And so here we maybe could distinguish the notion of person from the notion of like biological human. So we might want to say that when we're talking about the notion of person, We really care about continuation of psychology. And it might be that the notion of person can come apart from the notion of human.
0: One way to address certain puzzles that arise when we go in for the psychological theory of identity is if we do what Locke did, distinguish between different sorts of identity. You might be the same person, legally speaking, but not the same person, metaphysically speaking. We're justified, therefore, in incarcerating someone, even though they have total amnesia, even though we philosophers would think that they're in fact different people. There's a psychological discontinuity, and so there's a new person there, but it's the same forensic or legal person, and so we might think it's okay to lock them up. This raises the next of the three questions of personal identity that Amy Kine brought up at the top of the episode. The first one was the question of re-identification. How do we re-identify the same person through time and through changes in their mind and body? The second question is what Kine calls the question of identification. So not the question of re-identification, just the question of identification.
2: And this is another problem that's often associated with the term, the problem of personal identity. I call this an identification problem rather than a re-identification problem, which is just the question of what a person is. And I think that probably those people who tend to go psychological in nature with respect to the re-identification question probably do want a sharper dissociation between the notion of person and the notion of human. Whereas those philosophers who tend to go more in the direction of bodily considerations probably draw a tighter connection between the notion of person and the notion of human animal or human organism.
0: So if you like a psychology theory of re-identification, then you'll likely want to conceptually divorce a human as a person from a human as an organism. If you like a bodily theory, though, then you'll want a tighter conceptual connection between being a person and being a particular organism. If the organism goes away, as it seemingly does in the bionic woman case, so does the person.
2: So one reason to think that the notion of person might be broader than the notion of human is that we might very well want to recognize non-human persons. Um, So aliens, if there are such, or Forget about whether we can transfer our consciousness to a machine for a second and just think about the machines themselves. If we had suitably intelligent artificial systems um, that behaved as if they have consciousness and they have emotions and so on, uh, we might want to treat those systems as persons.
0: Don't be a substrate chauvinist. Which is fancy talk for don't think that just because the physical embodiment of a mind or intelligence or person is different, that it automatically can't be a person. Aliens could be persons. Artificial intelligences could be persons. Simulations could be persons and so on.
2: So that might be one reason to dissociate the notion of person from the notion of human.
0: Okay, so we've got the problem of re-identification and the problem of identification. The problem of re-identification is how do I re-identify a person through time? The problem of identification is what exactly is a person? Is it a human organism, an intelligence with certain features, an organism with certain features including but not limited to human beings, a certain set of perceptual inputs and behavioral outputs?
2: But there's one problem that we haven't yet talked about, and that's what's often referred to as the problem of multiplicity or the problem of reduplication.
0: To illustrate this problem, let's have a story.
2: Let's suppose we can upload your consciousness to a computer. We could do that in such a way, like let's say we do it and your body's dying, right? And this is our, our last ditch effort to save you. And so we download everything, um, all of your consciousness, and then we upload it to some other artificial body, just as your you know, natural body is breathing its last breath, right? Whew, we did it just in time. And now here you are, right? It's still you, it's you in this artificial body, but it's still you. But now suppose that just as we were doing the transfer, the doctors developed this amazing new technology and they rush in and they say, no, no, we can save this original natural body, this biological organism. And now here you are, existing still in your natural body, And yet, here you also are existing in this artificial network. Which one is you?
0: Now, this way of setting up the story, though, might bias you towards the original biological you. Of course, you might think, the real me is the me that has a biological body. The other is just a really good copy. But my body is where I live as long as that body is around.
2: We can sort of remove that by imagining the case slightly differently, which is just that maybe the scientists, the doctors aren't able to save your original body, but we're so good at uploading, we can do it twice, right? We can upload you to system A and we can upload you to system B. Maybe it's an opportunity now, you know, we say like, look, we have this great technology. Now you can live out your life, you know, as a, as a philosopher, you know, in one place, and you can also live your life out as a traveling musician in another place, right? You've you've had these competing desires all along. Now you get to fulfill both. And it sort of feels like, wait, I, I, w- I wouldn't be doing both. I would only be doing one. But yet you have the same connections of psychology to both of those, um, to both the philosopher and the traveling musician And so that problem of reduplication really threatens any kind of psychological view. That's been one real issue that's plagued them. So
0: the problem of reduplication threatens any sort of psychological view. If you hold the psychological continuity or connection to be the sole criterion of identity through time, then you've got a problem. You can be psychologically continuous with two different people. Are you then two people? Are you the combination of both of them existing in different places? Are you one or the other? They all sound like bad choices, bad choices that are sort of arbitrary or unmotivated. Therefore, so the argument goes, the psychological account of personal identity cannot be right.
2: Developing the view in the other way so that we we sort of um go for bodily considerations right actually the view is often referred to as animalism the thought is that we are just we are just human animals right that's just the kind of thing we are um so we are identical to our bodies there i think probably some of the biggest motivations is is that we don't tend to draw this same weighty distinction with respect to any other kind of biological organism, right? Cats, dogs, who we, who we think of as conscious, um, fish. Uh, there's, there's not like the cat person and the cat biological organism. And so we tend to think that what makes that cat exist is look, when it takes its first breath, comes into existence. And then when it takes its last breath, it goes out of existence, right? It's just what it is for a biological organism to exist. And we, you and I are just, we're just organisms. We're just biological organisms. So why would the conditions for our existence be any different, right? We come into existence when we take our first breath, um, Sorry, there might be some controversy there, but anyway, something like, something like that. We come into existence when we take our first breath, and we go out of existence when we take our last breath, just like the cat. Why would there be any difference about what makes us come into and go out of existence than any other biological organism there is?
0: Animalism is a body view of personal identity. I am identical with the human organism that I am. As soon as that organism dies, I die. This view entails that upload scenarios where my body and brain are scanned and simulated in a computer and my biological body dies are all scenarios where I die. I might take some small comfort in the idea that there's going to be a really good simulation of me, but I will have died.
2: No, you can't be uploaded. Uploading is death.
0: What about a scenario where I take over someone else's body like they do in movies like spoiler alert, get out the skeleton key, and so on.
2: Body swapping is death. You think that you would be waking up in another body, but really it would just be another body has all of a sudden undergone this kind of delusion, right? Like what makes it any different from a case in which someone's suffering from a delusion? Uh, they think now all of a sudden they're someone else and they're not. That's what would be going on in those kinds of tendentiously called body swap cases, the animalist would say.
0: Okay, so at this point, we have a pretty thorough presentation of different reasons to go in for animalism or a body view and different reasons to go in for a psychological or mind view. Let's discuss a couple of different ways to flesh out the psychological view. What specifically about the mind should we hang our identity on?
2: This all starts off with John Locke. And John Locke, when he was talking about the notion of person and personal identity he really put it in terms of of memory so i what makes me me is my consciousness and how far my consciousness can extend back in time and so it seems as if he's there talking even though he doesn't use the word memory it seems like he's talking about something like memory and that's how the view has been interpreted. So probably like the, the most basic version of a psychological theory would be some sort of memory view, which is someone at one time is the same person as someone at another time if there are connections of memory between the first and the second. John
0: Locke was a 17th century English philosopher. I've actually already mentioned him earlier in this episode. Also, as I've mentioned before on Reductio, he was a slave owner and a generally terrible person. But nevertheless, he gives voice in an astoundingly clear way to the sort of common sense view of a 17th century Englishman who has the luxury to sit around and think about the world while his slaves are doing the work. So he's at least useful, if not a really profound thinker necessarily. So the view is two people at different times are the same person if one has memories of being the other or if there is some other kind of memory connection.
2: This is a very simple and straightforward view, but unfortunately it's easy to come up with counterexamples to it. Here's the classic counterexample to Locke's theory
0: that personal identity is fixed by memory connections. The example was devised by a roughly contemporary of Locke's, Thomas Reed, though Jessica Gordon Roth points out that Barclay came up with a similar objection earlier.
1: Suppose a brave officer to have been flogged when a boy at school, for robbing an orchard, to have taken a standard from the enemy in his first campaign, and to have been made a general in advanced life. Suppose also, which must be admitted to be possible, that when he took the standard, he was conscious of his having been flogged at school, and that, when made a general, he was conscious of his taking the standard, but had absolutely lost the consciousness of his flogging. These things being supposed, it follows, from Mr. Locke's doctrine, that he who was flogged at school is the same person who took the standard, and that he who took the standard is the same person who was made general. Whence it follows, if there be any truth in logic, that the general is the same person with him who was flogged at school, but the general's consciousness does not reach so far back as his flogging. Therefore, according to Mr. Locke's doctrine, he is not the person who was flogged. Therefore, the general is, and at the same time, is not the same person with him who was flogged at school.
2: So it looks like Battlefield General is identical to apple-stealing child. Um, Senile old man is not identical to apple-stealing youngster. But senile old man is identical to the Battlefield General. And so now we have sort of this puzzle because we have... Um, Someone is and is not identical, uh, and logical puzzles are really hard to get one's way out of.
0: Good. So we've got a clear counterexample in the form of a paradox. The old man is not identical to the child, but the old man is identical to someone, the general, who is identical to the child. It seems that the memory theory cannot be correct. Not so fast, though. We can fix up the memory theory to get around this puzzle. We almost always have a choice. We can fix up our account or our theory. We can bite the bullet and accept the counterintuitive consequences of our account. Or we can accept that our account is wrong and go searching for a better account. Amy Kind offers us a way to fix up the memory account.
2: I tend to like to talk about continuity of memory, I tend to think of it as a braid. So as long as we have threads weaving through the braid, it doesn't matter if there's a single thread that goes all the way from senile old man to apple-stealing young boy, um, just as long as we have those overlapping threads. Excellent.
0: So instead of a single memory connection going from old man to young boy, we just need overlapping memory connections. So there's this sort of braid of memory threads connecting a life together. This seems like a pretty plausible account, and it gets us past Reed and Barclay's brave general paradox. Philosophy is sometimes like an arms race. You can bolster an account, but then the counterexamples become just a bit stronger or more extreme. Then you can fix your account again, and then the counterexamples become stronger to defeat your new account. The ideal is that someday you come up with an account where no one can come up with a counterexample. But A, I'm not so sure this will ever happen for most subjects in philosophy, and B, I have serious questions about this methodology. That's a conversation for another day. At this point, we might just abandon the memory theory. Who needs it? Honestly, it doesn't seem that promising to begin with. Memory? Why tie all of our personal identity to just one aspect of our psychology?
2: There are other sorts of psychological connections. So probably the most common way to flesh out that sort of psychological theory is to say that what makes someone at one time the same person as another time is to have connections of psychological continuity between them where that that can be more than just memory it can be hopes and intentions and desires and maybe personality traits and so on of course you can change various personality traits you can give up certain desires you know maybe when you were you were an idealistic young woman and then later in life you've turned into a sort of cranky old woman or something like that. Or maybe, you know, you were a meat-eating teenager and now you're a vegan um, middle-aged person. So it's not as if you can't change, but nonetheless, there are these overlapping threads that persist throughout the changes. And there are enough of those overlapping threads that connect you psychologically to your former selves. So I'm connected to my past self by way of memory. I'm connected to my future self by way of intentions, right? So earlier in this week, I formed the intention to talk to you today. And so that connected me forward in time to my future self. So that's, I think, probably the way that most contemporary theorists that hold to some version of the psychological theory would probably spell out the view
0: we can use this braided thread analogy to make a really plausible psychological account. What if, though, we really like the animalistic account or the body account? Can we use a similar sort of analogy to bolster that sort of account?
2: I think earlier versions of the physical view focused more on the body per se, and so they would talk about sameness of body over time. And I think more recent versions of the physical leaning view tend to go more in the animalist direction that um, we were talking about rather than talking about same body. But if you had some conception of same body and you could get it to be coherent, right, then certainly your body with a bionic arm is still the same, you know, you might say that's still the same body, right? Um, and your body with two bionic arms is still the same body. So maybe there's a sense if we do the changes slowly enough that even at the end, when you're entirely bionic, because the body has been completely functioning throughout that whole process, right, maybe it is still the same body. And so that wouldn't be noticed that that case wouldn't be a good one for the animalist because at the end of the process, you're no longer a human animal, like you're non-organic but if we could get going some notion of this of sameness of body that we could work with then the gradual replacement of body parts wouldn't necessarily count against a physical view.
0: Excellent. If we want to go in for a body or animal view, we can get around the bionic woman case by appealing to a sort of continuity that makes room for replacement of parts as long as there's continued biological functioning. We can replace everything as long as we do so gradually enough that there is a continuous thread of functioning so that we can re-identify the same person over time. Derek Parfit, who recently passed away actually, so he's a pretty contemporary thinker in philosophy, goes in for a view that I think is somewhat similar to a Buddhist no-self or an Atman view of the self. He thinks it is too weird to try to decide whether the person is the same in certain cases. And so it's best to hold a view according to which we don't have to decide at all. We just describe what happened, end of story. No need to make a sort of arbitrary decision about when a person is and when a person is not the same over time. He uses the example of a Star Trek transporter-like technology to do a sort of bionic woman thing. We use the transporter technology to replace 40% of your body and brain instantaneously. Are you the same person in that case? What about 50%? 51%? 75%? It seems arbitrary to try to draw a line. If it is arbitrary, then we might be better off not having to draw a line at all. Parfit, and I also think Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, go in for this sort of deflationary view. Just describe what happened and don't try to make decisions about when you are or are not the same person in any deep sense. There is no deep sense of personal identity. There's only the shallow sense where we can say to what extent someone is psychologically continuous through a transformation of some kind. But we never try to fix the really real answer as to whether they are the same self or ego or the like. I find a lot of these views quite plausible, actually, so I don't really know where to place my chips, personally. I think an organism view makes a lot of sense and aligns well with other aspects of my own worldview. I think a psychological continuity view makes a lot of sense and is probably the view that most sci-fi is based on, so a lot of that fiction colors my intuitions about who counts as the same person. I also find myself drawn to the deflationary view. I think Parfit's arguments make a lot of sense. Maybe we don't need anything deeper than a good description of what's going on. Maybe there is no deep fact of the matter in certain cases. But it's worth noting that even Parfit thinks that if you step into a, a matter transporter, then you die. This set of problems is of deep spiritual importance to many in the Judeo-Christian Muslim tradition, and similar issues arise in Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism, and so on. If I am to be resurrected or reincarnated, in what sense will that be me as opposed to a good copy of me? If I place my hope in the notion that I will be resurrected and all will be made right in the end times or the eschaton, I want some assurance that the resurrected me will be me, capital M me, not just a cheap, albeit divinely reproduced, copy of me, me. This is one of the perennial questions in philosophy for a reason. It's super fun, has a lot of great thought experiments, and now we have tons of great fiction like sci-fi to test our intuitions about different cases. I hope you learned a lot, but not so much that you cease to be the same person as you were before the episode began. If that happened, my apologies to your loved ones. I am so sorry for your loss. Thank you to Kelly Marie Lavin and Amy Kind for their help with this episode. Thank you so, so much to our patrons. Currently, that includes Peter Sujia and Barbara Sweer, Kui Gray Lavin, Rafa Smith, Oystein Johansson, Ben and Annalisa Colahan, robert jones owen roth luke and courtney adams and connor hughes if you would like to join these heroes of podcast funding even for just like 50 cents or a dollar a month head over to patreon.com slash reductio there's a link in the show notes please also rate and review us on itunes especially reviewing helps a lot there's also a link in the show notes for that that is a huge huge help now you've heard a little bit about the philosopher Derek Parfit, but you might not know that he really hated the Enlightenment. In his journal, he once wrote...
1: This oh. is terrible. Is this is the same era as Locke? Yeah. Enlightenment. Loosely,
0: Loose yeah, contemporary. Until next time, this has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media.